Well, we are back. Um, I don't know if we can call this a weekly podcast anymore, but our lives have been very busy. Um, but look at we're on episode 50. This is episode 50, five zero. Wow. Um, yeah. And uh, we're going to be continuing our kind of history of medicine extended series today, looking at the Civil War, which is going to be interesting. Um, I read a lot of articles this week that like, or last week, getting ready for this. I'm surprised. There are things I thought that like, I was like, huh, not true, actually. Like what? Or should we get into it later after we'll we get play into our it later. music and ask about the weather? Yeah, we'll get into it later. All right. Well, uh, we ready? Let's do it. Hello and welcome to An Incomplete History. I'm Hillary. And I'm Jeff. We're your hosts for this weekly history podcast. All right. Should I say we we're your hosts for this? We're your hosts for this sometimes when we have time to record it podcast. <laughs> Should we change it? <laughs> we're your host. We're your host for this periodically released, although on no, no set schedule podcast. <laughs> We aim to be weekly. I'm so sorry. There's it's just really a been a hard time going. since these last couple months. It <laughs> at some point we will get back to weekly, legitimately. Um, what we need to do is you and I need to go on some kind of podcast vacation to a cabin and just record like 20 podcasts. Oh my gosh, I'm so into that. And just have them ready to go. A podcast um, retreat. Tell Frank, take care of everybody. Bye. Yeah. You're in charge of everyone and everything. I'm going to head out. I'm going to the Poconos so, or something. Um, you had a very Florida moment before we started recording today. Yeah. There was a snake and a turtle in the yard simultaneously. <laughs> one of them lived and one of them died. Though. This is correct. Yes. One lived and one died. Um, but anyway, I've. How I did, felt that the, I felt that the snake should have just lived. Okay. Snake's lives matter to me. Frank, but how did Frank? I don't want to talk. I don't want to talk about it. It's funny though. It's not funny. It's so it's, Florida. It's ridiculous, I just, and I'm not. I would, be, I would not be surprised if I was driving down the street in Florida and I saw somebody brandishing a firearm in their front yard <laughs> towards the wildlife. <laughs> it's so not um, California, right? No, it's so it's like. Not. California, there'd be six police copters and the yeah. patrol cars everywhere, <laughs> like an investigation. Um, I just feel like the snake didn't need to die. It is, to know. be fair, it's a coral snake. It's a so coral it's snake. Deadly. So they are dangerous, and he didn't want it around the kids. And so I, okay, that's fair. Yeah. Or the, and or he the said doggies. it was slithering toward the bus stop. So he felt that he was protecting all of the children from the coral snake. Well, maybe it would just eliminate the children unfit to continue. Which kind of relates to today's theme. But we have weather coming. Like legitimate weather. You guys have had a lot of rain. We have had a strangely large amount of rain. 
Um, but we've got this huge storm that's coming in this afternoon, this atmospheric river. That's just, um, I don't know if people saw pictures out of Puget Sound or out of the Bay Area yesterday, but like there were cars floating down streets in the Bay Area yesterday. They got so much rain so rapidly. And we are expected to get one or two inches of rain in a three-hour period today, this afternoon. That's that's a substantial amount that's of rain for that area. Fashion that's gonna, gonna, fashion oh, yeah, you're going to flood, for sure. That's going to flood. Yikes. Um, the nice thing, if we get two inches of rain, that's like more than 10% of our annual rainfall. But that's not good all at once. Well, we're not. So interestingly enough, San Diego County, we are not in a we are at the lowest level of drought where it can still be called a drought. So we're almost not in drought. Now the rest of California is, is increasing degrees of droughtness, right? You don't want to make up for the drought in one storm. That's not good. Um, what we need, I mean, it's here's time for a little meteorology lesson. What we need in California is we need snow in the Sierras because the snow in the Sierras then melts gradually during the spring and summer. And that's what keeps our water levels up. And if we have light snowpack in the Sierras during the winter, then we ha- we're in for a bad spring and summer because we don't get the melt. Um, well, I think but- you're going to get that this winter because the farmer's almanac said it's going to be a very cold winter. Well, so it's, possible. It's, it's a La Nina year, which is, could mean a dry winter for Southern California. It'll mean a wet winter for NorCal but a dry winter for SoCal. But so far we are exceeding last year's precipitation. So I don't know who knows. I mean, it's, I don't know. Is global climate change going to disrupt La Nina, El Nino? I mean, are we going to be able to rely on those as predictors of anything? Um, I just watch every time there's a tropical storm in Pacific Mex- the Pacific coast of Mexico, it gets a little bit further north every single time. That's true. You kind of wonder how that's going to look in 10 years. What's San Diego going to do when we finally get a hurricane that hits us? Not survive it very well. <laughs> Coronado. It's going to be overwhelmed. Um, are you still enjoying the fall weather? So the last couple of weeks have been so nice, but then today... It got hot and humid again, but it's only going to be this way for today and tomorrow. And then it's supposed to start going back to nice again. How hot? How hot again? Today, it's 90. Wow. That is kind of warm. I mean, it's okay. So it's real feel 90. So it's like the humidity makes it 90. I think the actual temperature is like 82 maybe, Okay. but it definitely feels like 90. It's really wet out. Um, It's been raining today. But um, by, let's see, Wednesday, it's supposed to be so pleasant. And, and it's been pleasant, you know, the last couple of weeks. So I'm pretty pumped about that. Cool. All right. So Are we, let's, ready? Are we ready to get in some, some morbid discussion? Let's do it. All right. Uh, medicine. So we're continuing our medicine series. And today we're going to focus on the American Civil War because I think we both agree this theory that at least in the United States case, but maybe more globally, conflict, military conflict really drives medical advances. Yeah, that's, Would, that's seems to be the theme of the class that I'm teaching too. It's like when there is a war or something like you have a huge advancement in medical um, practice and infrastructure 
and techniques and everything. And like every single time you see a major breakthrough in medicine, it really does kind of coincide with a war, right? So I'm going to present a couple of innovations that happened during the war, and then we can kind of talk about what leads into those. These are that I want to talk about. I mean, I don't know what, you know, Hillary and I don't discuss with each other what we're going to talk about. It's a great way Um, to have a podcast. So there are a couple of things that are specifically related to infectious diseases. Um, One is a medicine. The other is a procedure, a technique or procedure. Um, Quarantine. Um, The rise of hospitals. I mean, hospitals exist prior to this moment, but not in the way they're going to exist during the war and then after the war, right? Um, An ambulance system. I was a little surprised by this. Oh, I love the ambulance. Um, It is invented during the Civil War. Yeah. Uh, Specialty hospitals. Um, Anesthetics. Um, that's one of the major myths of the civil war. I think people think that anesthetic wasn't around. Well, you would give somebody locking people's arms off. You would give them a a big glug of whiskey and then you just hack that limb off. But that's not true. It's not. They were using, they were anesthetizing uh, over 80% of patients who were undergoing amputation. Um, neurosurgery techniques, arterial ligation. And plastic surgery, this one really surprised me. And I thought back, there's a book both Hurley and I read, and I really love this book. It's Francis Clark's War Stories. I should have realized plastic surgery was going on with the stuff that was being talked about in War Stories. But it didn't really. So so let's start with what War, war Stories, a lot of its focus is on dying, but a lot of it is on these soldiers who survive amputation and what their lives look after afterwards. And it's a brilliant book. It's Francis Clark war stories. You should definitely pick it up and read it. It's short. It's very, I think approachable by non-historians, which wouldn't you agree? Yeah. Um, It's one of the most readable history books I've ever read. And so I, it's one of my favorites. They, so these amputees, participate in handwriting competitions, penmanship competitions, because most of them are using their offhand to write. And I I just remember there was one, one of the guys, he got so good at it. He eventually gets banned from the competitions because he became so adept at using his arm, his remaining hand to write um, that they were like, well, you're just going to win all the time. But it's an interesting thing because what really strikes me about that is the reintroduction of wounded soldiers back into society. And do we hide that or do we embrace it? And one of Clark's big arguments is these soldiers put their, their stumps for lack of a better word on display. They don't hide it. Like they don't have the arm, the the remainder of the amputated arm, like hidden down at their side. They like put it right there and it's like, look at it. Because well, it's and, a badge of honor, right? Yeah, and it's um, there. It's so ubiquitous in a way. I mean, there are so many people who mm-hmm. are amputees who survived the war. And one of the little statistics I have about that is the year after the war ended, 
the state of Mississippi spent 20%, 20% of its annual budget on artificial limbs for veterans. I think we both read Robert Riley's article because it's Probably. brilliant. It's a really good yeah. article. But, but I mean, tw- that's that's a lot. That's a substantial amount of money uh-huh. um, going toward the, the artificial limbs. So, yeah, it's, it's a uh, kind of a ubiquitous experience for those who survived the war. Many of them had limbs amputated. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, let's back up even a little bit more. Generally, the number is 620,000 dead in the war. Um, more, more deaths than all other military engagements by the U.S. combined. However, less than the number we've lost to COVID. I, isn't that just staggering? Yes. So it was 2% of the U.S. population at the time died during the war. And it, it's interesting because I think people hear a number like 2% and they're like, oh, that doesn't sound like too much. It's like, really? That's a lot of people. Like, um, But we think the death toll might be undercounted. That the Confederate numbers were underreported because there's this fire in Richmond, right? Well, it's hard to say how many people actually did die, right? I mean, there is a lot of... Um, back and forth that there isn't a lot of consensus about how many died because the numbers could be a lot higher. And I think one of the things that's not counted in this, is like there were a lot of people who died in battle, but there were a lot of people who died just in proximity to the war that may not be counted as like battlefield deaths or war casualties necessarily, but the amount of disease that was rampant, the starvation, um, you know, it, there were a lot of lives lost at this in this era that maybe wouldn't have been had the war not been happening. I think that there was like a much higher death toll in those four years, even amongst civilian population, um, that maybe not counted as like war casualties. Again, an interesting analog to to kind of casualties during COVID medical professionals already said for the last year and a half, people have been avoiding medical treatment for other things. So we don't know how many people are dying and they're not dying of COVID, but their deaths are linked to COVID because they did not get medical care. Yeah. Or people who are having heart attacks and there's not Mm -hmm. an ICU bed for them or people who are in car accidents and the same thing, right? There's a lot of, um, would you call it like collateral? collateral I, I mean, I guess or? because it's unintended, right? It's it's so Riley in this article and a couple of other people agree the number might be seven hundred fifty-two thousand dollars, fifty-two thousand dollars, seven hundred fifty-two thousand deaths. Soldiers. These are not. This is not counting unintended civilian deaths because we know in some of these camps you get diseases that run rampant. Um, but three quarters of a million people dead. And there's this technological argument to be made of why this happens. And Europeanists hate it when we as Americanists say this. The Civil War is the first modern war. 
because they the get kill- upset because they think World War One is right. Well, that or they uh, no, I think the Franco-Prussian. I think a lot of mm-hmm. them want to argue the Franco-Prussian, but the Franco-Prussians after this, and you've got the weapons that are introduced in the Civil War can visit destruction on the body in a way other weapons didn't. One of those things is rifling. So the guns that were used by soldiers prior to the Civil War were fairly inaccurate, um, which could be a good or bad thing. I mean, we have in the, the Revolutionary War, you get soldiers who get maimed because of these horrible missed shots. But it was much less likely for you to die unless you got an infection or something. But in the Civil War, these guns become much more accurate. Um, well, then you've got like the cannons, the mini balls. Mm-hmm. You got you've got the artillery advancements. You get the Gatling gun, uh, which is kind of this rudimentary machine gun, um, and you also have a new way of performing war. I mean, it's it is less and less like Napoleonic war where you get kind of formations of soldiers on big fields engaging, although that happens at times. Um, But it's not until kind of commanders turn towards different forms of engagement that the war still really starts to change. But these alternate forms of engagement increase casualties. Well, and because of the style of weaponry you have, you know, it's not just that, you know, these cannons or gunfire, like these new, this new style of weaponry comes out that can ravish the body in different ways. I mean, you could have it, you know, one shot to the head or the gut or something and be dead. But the other thing that happens is like, you know, you have limbs that are flying off and they're doing amputations and the infection rates are insane, right? We haven't even reached the germ theory of disease yet. We're still kind of operating under this miasmic germ theory, um, you know, the germ theory doesn't arise until the 1880s. I think it's 1883. So there's still not a very good understanding of infection. And there's certainly not a good way to treat infections. But when you have this advancement in weaponry, you have more people who are getting infected. And then people are dying a lot of infection. And so I think that that's another, that's another facet here. Sorry, Harvey's being very aggressive at the door right now um yeah i mean it's that's the thing is like there's this perfect storm of advances in technology to kill people but not commensurate advances in helping those people once they're injured well so they try though because when we're talking about the invention of the ambulance for example they for the first time realize we need to transport soldiers who are injured off of the battlefield we need to get them off as soon as possible. And we need to treat them. And of course, you know, these are horse drawn ambulances. It's not like a woo, 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 you know, vehicle at this point, obviously, but it's still, it's like a, it's a designated ambulance corps that develops in order to remove wounded people from the battlefield. They do have an urgency when it comes to amputations. They try to amputate within 24 hours um, in order to, cause they do understand that infections happen and they do want to try to stave them off. They're not sure how to treat them. They're not sure how they happen, but they know that they do happen. And so even though it's difficult to, um, 
you know, to, to treat all of these wounded people, they are trying really hard and they're making all these different advancements and different calls and trying to, um, you know, re reformulate the way that, uh, soldiers are treated off the, uh, off the battlefield when they're injured. Um, and because of the demand for it, you do see an advancement, even though they don't quite have it down yet. There are, they are trying to make advancements in order to meet the demand of so many injured and dead people. So is it fair to say, so there are amputations. Do we have a, a good idea of how many amputations take place during the war? I have my numbers just a second. Um, okay. Let me get back to you in a second. We, we have, there's a lot. There are so many, in fact, that I think they say at Antietam, um, there were so many amputations at the Battle of Antietam that they couldn't even bury the number of limbs. They were just like piled so, so high. They couldn't even keep a handle on it. Well, it was 175,000 wounds to extremities to Union soldiers. This isn't counting Confederate soldiers. 30,000 of those went un- underwent amputation. You had just over one in four of those who had amputations died. Right. Um, and they noticed a few things. First of all, like you said, they, they noticed medical professionals. I mean, this is a real leap for medical professionalization as well. They start to notice that if the amputation is performed within two days of the injury, the likelihood of a soldier surviving went up considerably. Um, Additionally, not just any doctor could amputate. So you had to be specially trained. You had to receive special training and you had to kind of be marked as a doctor who was allowed to do this, which was good. They didn't just want any old snake oil salesman out there like, oh, we got to cut the arm off. When there were a lot of them out there. Right. Because... The number of physicians during this time increases dramatically, but you're right. They still do value some manner of professionalization or training when it comes to amputations. So what's interesting though, is why this professionalization happened. It was public pressure. So the public had this perception that that was just doctor's number one go-to thing. It's like if something happened to a soldier, they just like amputate. And so the military, the Union Army kind of instituted this. And here's the thing, and this is what kills me. Germ theory, Lister's paper, doesn't get published till 1867, two years after the war. So these amputations are non-sterile. Well, and the germ theory... You know, there's a paper published, but it's not accepted until I think the 1880s. Right. But I mean, that's horrifying. Right. That there's no antiseptic. There's no sterilization of tools. If you see pictures of old Civil War tools that they were using to amputate, it's really scary. It's like, I would rather just not survive. Well, because you could spread infections. So say you amputated one soldier's limb and they had an infection. And then you went to another soldier who maybe didn't. There was contamination. It was, uh, it's actually shocking. They only killed one in four. Yeah. I mean, it's actually, it's true. And that sounds horrible. That sounds absolutely horrible. To have a 75% survival rate. That's not bad. 
considering Ooh. the circumstances, these field hospitals, the lack of experience, the lack of antiseptic. Um, yeah, I mean, it is, it's sort of a miracle that they were able to be so successful. So what's interesting too, is we start to get these large hospitals to develop, but the hospitals become a source of infection as well. Because now you put all these soldiers together and you have nurses who aren't sterilizing themselves between treatments and you end up with gangrene, you end up with this, um, what is a, a large percentage of patients, about half, who developed this, uh, what is it, streptococcal infection? Yeah, died. staph and strep. You died. Things, you yeah. had a, about a one mm-hmm. in two chance of dying. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are advances made towards treating that, though. Um, so we get for other infections, for like infectious diseases. So quinine starts to be used for malaria to prevent malaria. And they start to quarantine soldiers who are um, feared to have yellow fever. And they also quarantine ships down in New Orleans mm-hmm. who are coming in because they understand the the need for quarantine at this point. And that comes out of the miasmic theory of like, they know that there's something bad in the air. Right. Um, and because they, they had quarantined or they had attempted to quarantine in the late 18th century during the yellow fever epidemic. They weren't very successful. But during the Civil War, they're still they're still trying to practice that two week quarantine of any ships coming in, especially coming from the Caribbean, mm-hmm. because what happens all the way through World War One is there are far more deaths in battle due to disease and illness than there are actually casualties in battle. And, you know, it can be yellow fever, malaria, cholera, influenza by World War One venereal disease. Right. There are all these different diseases. There's all these different illnesses that circulate around the camps, um, you know, malnutrition stuff that ends up those things kill the soldiers far more than them actually being in battle. And Mm so the development of the medical profession is paramount to the success of any conflict. Like if they're not able to combat the diseases that are running rampant, then they're not, they're going to have no manpower. Yeah. Well, and that's, that gets back to also, there are these pre-induction exams that are supposed to deem the health of recruits. So you don't end up recruiting soldiers that are going to die very easily anyway, but the pressure to get bodies out on the battlefields becomes so intense that they're ignoring those those requirements. Oh, they do not pay attention to those protocols at all. I mean, like they, what is it that said? It's like, if you have your front teeth, mm-hmm. they'll let you in. If you can walk, if you can shoot a gun, mm-hmm. you're in. Yeah. Right. And why do you need your front teeth? Did you read that? Uh, well, it had to do with the cartridges, didn't it? Yeah. If you, you had to tear open cartridges containing gunpowder. And that's mm-hmm. how they used it was with their teeth. And, you know, it's interesting because so many people didn't have teeth then. Yeah. So it was like the bone spurs of the 19th century. Did, um, <laughs> uh, do you know what else? Uh, there's another military conflict that the cartridges are important in. The Sepoy Rebellion in India. Oh, okay. That happens about 10 years before the Civil War. You need um, the front teeth? The Well, the British 
so they're using local soldiers in India. Um, some are Muslim, some are Hindu, um, and some are Sikh as well. Uh, so they use fat to do the cartridges. So some genius in Britain decides to use both pig fat and cow fat. Ooh. So that way they're offending everybody. Nobody. Um, now it's not the cause. Right. Now it's not the cause of this, the, the mutiny, but it certainly doesn't help the mutiny. But I mean, this is the thing is like, yeah, it's, it's interesting that like this health requirement has less to do with the health of the soldier and survivability as it does their utility in battle. Right, their um, ability to fight. Yeah, absolutely. Cause all they're yeah. just like, can you walk? Can you carry a gun? You got a trigger finger and teeth you're in. And I mean, the quotas, right? There were actual quotas for physicians mm -hmm. and you had to fill those quotas. And so physicians overlooked any sort of medical issues in order to meet those, those quotas. So before the war, there were 113 doctors in the army. This is a fascinating statistic, isn't it? 113 doctors. So this is 1860, 113 soldiers. 113 doctors. 113 doctors. Um, 16,000 soldiers. Yes. Um, of those 113, 24 went south and joined the Confederacy. Three Which is were quite dismissed. A few. It's like a fifth. Yep. Three were dismissed for disloyalty. So they like sympathized with the Confederacy, but didn't go mm -hmm. join the Confederacy, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, so five years later, so you basically go from. Um, yeah, 113 doctors to 100 and or 15,000 doctors combined across the Union Confederate armies. Mm -hmm. That's 113 to 15,000. And so, what does that tell you about their training? Um, it must be good. So, here's what I started thinking a lot about as I was reading over these statistics and facts and everything. It's like the the profession of nursing really comes about during the civil war. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, I would say the British and the Crimean, I, I would say the Crimean war, they have an argument to make because that's um, in the uh, United States. Florence Nightingale. Right there. But I'm but saying here, in the United yeah. States, like in the as, United a, States. as a yeah. profession in the United States, the civil war. Uh, so is I do, the nursing. So I do this exercise in the revolutionary war with my students where they have to construct a role that they would have had during that era. And I always have students who are like, I'm a nurse. And I was like, no, you're not. They're you're, like, I would, I would be a nurse. nurse. And yeah. I was like, you're like one of the two nurses. Well, I work at the hospital in Boston. And There's I was like, no well, hospital, since it doesn't you. exist, you don't. Right. I mean, it's the civil war is when this all happens. So, yeah. so you were going to say something about the. So nurses. I started thinking, you know, like there's, you go from 113 physicians to 15,000. Very clearly, these people do not have proper training or education. The nurses are performing very similar tasks with very similar experience and lack of education, but they're designated as nurses simply because they're women when they have mm -hmm. exactly the same amount of exposure and experience as the men.
women are relegated well, from they- then until now into this lower paying, lower status job mm-hmm. that they had just as much experience as the men did at that point. You know, I mean, like it kind of, it well, really kind of pisses me off when you think about it. Like, why couldn't they have been physicians too? They had just as much training. Well, I, I would argue um, the nurses then, just like now, are probably per- performing the bulk of the medical care. They were doing more. Uh, yeah, they were the um, ones doing all the care. Which meant they were more experienced relatively soon into the war. But but let's go back. I mean, it's so I think it's I mean, the United States basically gets caught with his pants down for the Civil War. Right. I mean, it's so the Battle of Bull Run or the Battle of Manassas, depending on what side you're on. Um, 1861, July 21st. Um, happens. And people assumed it would play out in a certain way, and it didn't. It became very bloody very quickly. Um, granted, you have fewer than a thousand that are killed, but you have about twenty five hundred that are wounded. But they have no way to deal with these injured or dead people, so most of the people who were wounded stayed on the battlefield for two days in the rain. Right. And it's at that point that they realize that they need an ambulance corps. Yeah. Because there was a civilian ambulance corps, but they absconded. Yes. As soon as the battle started, they ran off. Like, oh, it's well, once scary the bullets started flying, they were like, This <laughs> is what we thought it was gonna be at all. I mean, that's the thing. Prior to the battle of Bull Run, everybody thought it was gonna be this kind of honor bound, valorous engagement, and it wouldn't and it's very clear right from that first shot. It is not that at all. Right. Um, so the U S had very few hospitals as well. There's, there's no medical infrastructure. The government's really weak. So it, they start, so they start building these hospitals. My favorite is Chimborazo. Oh, in Richmond, in Richmond, Virginia. Yeah. So how do they build Chimborazo? <laughs> do you um. remember it? It's tobacco crates. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they build it out of tobacco crates. Um, it turns but, out these cash crops aren't really helpful during the war. Right. So they start using the, the tobacco crates to build it. But it's a it's the biggest hospital in the uh-huh. South. It's in 30, Richmond. Uh, 40 acres, mm-hmm. uh, 150 wards, 40 mm-hmm. to 60 patients per ward. Um at its max, it had 4,000 patients simultaneously. And by the end of the war, it had 76,000 patients. And what I find interesting is this. The number sounds horrible, but considering the time, it only had a 9% mortality rate. I don't think that sounds bad at all, considering what we've already said. There's no antiseptic, no understanding of germ theory. There's mm-hmm. no <laughs> sterilization of equipment. And we're in, a, we're in the biggest war ever in the and history of also- the country. And it's a Confederate hospital, which means their supplies go down rapidly. They have no supplies. So like a nine, yeah, a 9% mortality rate is actually not that egregious. Um, as, as bad as it sounds. But so what happens to doctors during the war? Like, Well, they're way overworked. Well, they stopped doing some things they've done in the past. And we talked about one of the things Rush advocated, which was in line with medieval. Oh, bleeding. 
bleeding just disappears. Yeah. Well, because it's a mess. I mean, they've figured out at this point, like, hey, bleeding people actually doesn't work at all. Well, also, these poor guys are like bleeding out on the battlefield. Right. They're like, yeah, they're not getting better. Like, right. Um, but they start to. There are some bright spots here, right? Malaria and yellow fever. Why are they bright spots? They're bright spots because there starts to be a concerted approach to doing this. So 1861, uh, William H. Van Buren discovers that quinine can be used to prevent malaria. That if you give soldiers quinine, they don't develop malaria. So Union soldiers get this. However, in the South, they don't have a large enough supply of this to do this. So Southern soldiers end up getting malaria at a at a rate higher than their Northern counterparts. Um, they didn't know where malaria came from, so they don't know that they can tie it to mosquitoes and all these other things. Well, but, they did though, because they started having pro the union started having protocols for where to dig out camp. They started using mosquito nets. Like they did start to create, well, I, they understood the connection. Right. They knew that there was a connection to these swampy, stagnant areas. They mm -hmm. just didn't quite know how it worked. Right. Um, another one was yellow fever. And yellow fever, they began quarantining. And quarantining wasn't necessarily a new thing, but doing it to the soldiers really helped. And like you said, the, the stuff that went on in New Orleans probably helped some larger outbreaks from prevented larger outbreaks. Um, what I find interesting is New Orleans quarantined ships 70 miles away from the city. Smart. I mean, what I they... want to know though, is how do they justify um, using those vessels there? Now this is New Orleans under union control. This is not New Orleans under the South. Mm -hmm. How do they justify devoting those naval resources to that? Well, because of the high instances of disease. I mean, I think that they understood that more people were being, more soldiers, more manpower was being lost due to these diseases than anything. And they were willing to take the hit of a couple of weeks. So they'd rather have a couple of weeks of people not being around or not mm -hmm. supplies not being around or something rather than everyone dying. But I think that's a huge advance too. It's a huge advance. That suddenly they're because like. Because they tried to do it in Philadelphia in the 18th century and it wasn't successful. We had, mm -hmm. there were a bunch of like anti-maskers who were like, we're not quarantining because Benjamin Rush had suggested a quarantine and they mm -hmm. had put it in place. The city had put it in place and nobody paid attention to it. And that's how it ran so rampant. But by the, the time the civil war rolls around, they, they do understand the necessity of this. And they also understand that like, we can't lose more people. You know, I mean, we have to risk um, putting off the supplies or putting off the manpower in order to contain these diseases. Because the other things is inoculation, although it had been a you know thing and there was a vaccine for it, a lot of people hadn't received it and they hadn't they didn't have a lot of doses at the time. There mm -hmm. was there was they were running low on it and a lot of people hadn't been vaccinated because there weren't as many outbreaks anymore. So there was no protection from it. Um at that time. And so it was better to quarantine the ships than it was to risk an outbreak. Mm -hmm. So smallpox. So we got a vaccine. We talked about the smallpox vaccine last time. Um, but very few Americans are vaccinated against smallpox at this point. Um, 
and this is horrifying. And I, so they end up aspirating pustules of vaccinated people because they can't get the vaccine materials. So bright side, it inoculates against smallpox. Downside, you can track syphilis as a result they of it. They start spreading syphilis, yeah. And this becomes another issue. And this is in my own research. I kind of touch on this a little bit. These soldiers gathered together are drinking. And so you have this kind of concern with alcoholism and you got, you have uh, department of war records are kind of tracking how many soldiers are considered to have alcohol problems. But you also have these soldiers visiting prostitutes and often leisure time activity. And it's, and oftentimes it's only a handful of prostitutes that are servicing a large number of soldiers. So you get venereal diseases just run rampant through these camps at times. And the army really insinuates itself into trying to police that. And there's well, this- not during con- the Civil War. Well, the ar- they do, during the Civil War, they try to. They try to kind of um, encourage officers to hang out with enlisted men to show them a model of how they should behave. Um, and it doesn't really work. What ends up usually happening is the, the officers who are most likely to hang out with the enlisted soldiers also want to go get drunk and visit prostitutes. Um, but this connection between morality and health, I think really starts to solidify in a very Victorian way during the civil war. One, it's because it's, there's the, genesis of it and within civilian society before right and you start to have you know the the really really early grassroots feminist movements in the late 19th century that are trying to address public health and morality but i think it really takes off during the progressive era and then especially during world war one oh i think think that we could yeah have an episode about that but I think it takes off, but I think there are antecedents of it here in the Civil War because you do have um, uh, critics of army policy who point out and say, well, look, this is this commander is kind of morally upright and his soldiers have a lot less problems with these things, whereas this other commander is an alcoholic and does this other stuff and his soldiers have trouble. I mean, we get... For the first time, we get medical concerns raised about certain military leaders in a really concerted way. So Ulysses S. Grant is famously characterized as an alcoholic. He's a lush. He's a lush. And Sherman is portrayed as mentally ill. Um, And I, I mean, I find it interesting. So many of my students will bring that up when we talk about um, when those two men come up and they're like, well, everybody knows Sherman was crazy and, and Grant was a, a drunk. And I was like, well, how do you know that? Well, I've just, everybody been, told knows that. Yeah, I've right. just been told that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we've got kind of the amputation stuff. They're using anesthesia. They're using chloroform, right? Chloroform, um, right. Either. They're conducting, not just amputations, but surgeries get a little more advanced. They're cons- conducting kind of basic neurosurgeries. 
they're able to do it ver- very quickly too, mm-hmm. right? They're because the doctors are way, way, way overworked. Because as we said, only a limited number of people could perform these surgeries, but they were performing them one right after another, sun up until sundown, and they could do it really quickly. Mm-hmm. And you get some famous people participating in this, and this is kind of. What I find interesting is I did not realize this till we started getting ready for this episode. What? Walt Whitman was a nurse. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he writes about being mm-hmm. a nurse. Yeah. I mean, after I read it, I was like, oh, yeah, now I, yep, I guess he does write about that. And he sat with so many soldiers and talked with them. And I remember the first time I learned that was when I was in Washington, D.C., and I was going down into the Metro and it was in DuPont circle, I think. Mm-hmm. And there's a quote from Walt Whitman etched into the Metro stop. And it's something about him nursing soldiers during the civil war. And I was like, what? And it's so like, of course, me being the dorky loser I am, I spent my day like what's going on with Walt Whitman and the soldiers in the civil war, you know, mm-hmm. but he was, yeah, he was attended their bedside and, um, and wrote, you know, pretty extensively about his experience there. But the other, I mean, there was this war impacted everybody. Mm-hmm. That's something that's interesting about it for me. It's like it impacts everyone and it's happening in so many places. You know, the article that we've continued to reference, one of the first lines in that article says the the civil war was fought in over 10,000 places. It was I love the war. way that that started because it's it's an all out, all encompassing, life altering event. Mm -hmm. It was total war. Um, In a way that the revolution, um, the war of 1812, the Mexican-American war, it's it's ways that those wars weren't total wars. Right. And it's not Um, fought on the periphery. It's everywhere. I mm -hmm. mean, it's going on in places all over. I mean, it's, it's regionally the South, but it completely just destroys all of the South. And it's happening in towns everywhere and things that are on fire and people are starving and um, everybody, you know, is involved in some way, shape or form or impacted by it. It's like, there's no avoiding it though. Cause during the revolutionary war, there was a lot of room for apathy. I think mm-hmm. there were a lot of people who were just like, oh, I don't know. I'm not paying attention to what's going on with that whole thing. There's no room for that here. Right. Everyone was involved. So another pivotal figure is Clara Barton. Yes. Nurse. And she's at the vanguard of this middle class group of women who are really going to influence the way the country views women morally and professionally, right? So she's famously founds the American Red Cross, but she her she's all about efficiency and delivering care for the wounded and delivering supplies and it's a very industrial approach right and this was uh jonathan letterman who was medical director of the army of the potomac he also wanted to bring order and efficiency to the army to the medical service of the army so it's barton kind of does this but what is i mean barton she's not technically part of the army right She's this auxiliary. Um, well, the Red Cross is kind of like a neutrality 
right? Yeah. That's how it's founded as like a, this neutral organization. Well, and the idea is everybody. that if you're that the Confederacy wouldn't fire on Red Cross workers, mm-hmm. right? Um, well, nobody was, would fire, right? Like it was, right, that nobody would fire on them that they were out there. But I mean, one of the things you know, and this comes out of the Battle of Bull Run, but continues was. And it's in Francis Clark's war stories. She has these horrible stories of these soldiers dying in the middle of a field, like they're wounded. But if they had been able to be, to be kind of taken to a hospital and treated, they probably wouldn't have died. But they just don't have the infrastructure to to kind of transport these soldiers. So you get these men dying out on these fields. And what's even more tragic is they take a piece of paper out and they write a letter as they die. And there are a couple that are just like these bloodstained letters of this poor young man, like dying on the field. Mm-hmm. Um, but Barton kind of recognized that the army needed to do a better job of like transporting these soldiers. Um, and, you know, Letterman himself understands that if if you can save these soldiers and they're not grievously injured, they may continue fighting. They might actually be able to continue to fight. And if you just leave them out there to die, it's a waste of resources. Mm-hmm. Setting aside the humanity of it all, it's not a good use of resources. So what kind of comes out of Barton's time in the Red Cross during the Civil War? Like in the aftermath of the Civil War, what does she end up doing with that? I don't know what you mean. What do you mean? What does she end up doing? I mean, what is it? So the civil war ends 1865. Does she just pack up and we're like, we're done. No more. Well, no, I mean, I think that she's involved in a lot of, you know, efforts to expand the medical profession. Right. I mean, well, and they, and this is the whole thing is, is now you get all these specialists in the military, take those ideas and apply them back on civilian medicine. So ideas about, treatment for illnesses, um, uh, morphine, right? Morphine becomes a big treatment um, for for injuries and pain. Um, new designs for hospitals focus on ventilation. Um, not quite sanitation. I don't think we can call it sanitation yet, right? Um, although maybe we can. I don't know. Is sanitation too strong of a word to apply at this time or is it I think it's too strong a word for the time, um, but I mean, public health. Yeah, right. Public health. Uh, and then she I mean, also was um, involved in finding missing soldiers, trying to uh-huh. um, help bring them back home and, um, you know, so this trying is to answer Gilpin. inquiries. So Drew Gilpin Faust has this great book, Republic of Suffering. And one of the arguments in that book is that the scale of death in the Civil War creates the modern federal government. Because they have to have a robust response. You've got three quarters of a million corpses, human corpses. You've got multiple times that of horse corpses. And they realize that there's a recognition that they have to like treat all of this. They have to like, first they have to treat the wounded and dying, but second, they have to like, get these corpses and if they're humans they have to like find who who they the belong to and yeah, yeah exactly if they're horses they have to figure out how to dispose of them right and it's this huge logistical nightmare so you end up with these groups being sent out into the woods in the south for years afterwards 
looking for the remains of soldiers to try to make sure everybody who died in the war gets identified. Um, so yeah, Barton and kind of these other people set up these agencies in cities, mostly in the North initially, but eventually in the South after the war is over, where people can go to try to figure out what happened to their loved ones. Yeah. And it's kind of the argument being is like, this is kind of the apparatus for the expansion of the government. Because the necessity to undertake such a process really does require the expansion of the institution, right? Like you have to expand it by hiring people and giving them these jobs and having this record keeping. Um, and it just didn't really quite exist before that because there was no need for There was no need for something so expansive. Um, until after the after the war, trying to deal with all the dead and trying just to deal with the fallout and the aftermath of such mm -hmm. a, um, you know, life altering, history altering conflict, of course. But that, you know, the medical establishment expands, the government expands, public health, every, you know, everything, you know, kind of undergoes this transformation that's not just you know, about the war, but it's about just a restructuring of American society. Mm -hmm. Big Pharma gets its start at this point too. Yeah. Eli Lilly, Colonel Eli Lilly. Yeah. He was a pharmacist and afterwards, I mean, to bring it back around to COVID-19 and, and things, it, it's, I think war is like a crucible for medical procedures. And we see this, we're going to see this in the Spanish American war. We're going to see it in world war one. We're going to see it in the, uh, world war two, mm -hmm. um, huge leaps in kind of the way we approach medicine. So there's a great museum in Frederick, Maryland. So if you live there or near there, you should make a visit to there. So Frederick, Maryland, um, so it's a border state, right? It, occupies this space between Pennsylvania, the and the Maryland. Yeah. It ends up, people end up remarking Frederick during the war was like one large hospital and the museum of civil war medicine is there now. Um, but I think we've kind of walked through the civil war, the main, the main aspects. I think there's stuff we've left out, right? Um, well, there's first plenty, of all, yeah. Um, civilians, what's happening with civilians during the war. Second, contraband. So when we talk about contraband, who are we talking about? Enslaved freed, people? Freed yeah. slaves, right? Freed slaves um, who've been, they've not been liberated, right? Because they're considered contraband. Um, and we know that medical conditions are a big issue there as well because you've got overcrowding, you've got diseases running rampant there as well. Um, you've also got some doctors who are propagating ideas that medically African-Americans are different from white Americans. Um, so it's a mess. I think there's also something to be said that we didn't cover enough about nutrition. Oh. Just, you know, wreaking absolute havoc on, you know, the well, malnutrition. The, I mean, you look at what soldiers are given for rations. It's like hard tack, bacon, most of the time rancid, and coffee. And Necco wafers. And Necco wafers are... They were invented during the Civil War. Um, that's why I hate them, I think. Oh my God, they're so delicious. I love Necco oh, wafers. They don't taste like anything. Are you kidding me? 
It's like it's very if, distinct it's, flavors. It's like Smarties don't taste like anything, but I still love them. But Necco wafers have distinct flavors. And it's one like of the distinct flavors I don't like is like a licorice. And I don't like that. Anyway, yeah, well, nutrition was a really big issue. Anyway. And that was a huge well, driver of death and disease as well in the camps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, maybe we'll talk about nutrition as its own episode. I think next time, next episode, we're going to talk about crazy ideas at the end of the century, right? I'm excited about that. Yeah. Um, crazy ideas of, like trying to invent new medicines and, and all this kind of stuff. Well, they invent new diseases. They do, to do invent that. new medicines for. They do, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> so this will continue our series on the history of American medicine. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm Jeff. And I'm Hillary. Thanks for joining. <laughs>